open your Bibles with me to Philippians 3 once again. We often come to forks in the road in our lives, don't we? Where we have a choice between going one direction or going the other direction. Usually there are two ways to go. When we pull out of the driveway, we usually turn left or we turn right. Um, If you come to an intersection like this, I don't know what you do. It kind of ruins my illustration um, because I have no clue what to do with that. But a lot of times we graduate high school. You choose either to go to college or to work. Or maybe you choose to go to a Christian college or secular college. Um, when you have dinner, you either choose pizza or you choose pizza. Really, there's really only one choice with that one. Um, but a lot of times we have two choices in our life. And as we look at the passage, we're going to see two ways to go. Either two ways to go in how you are living now or two ways to go as in your destination, your final destination. So if you're in Philippians chapter 3, we're going to look at verse 17, and we'll go through chapter 4, verse 1. Let's look together. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, and by the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we come to this passage, not just to understand it better, but to see how we need to grow and change so that we might live this out in our lives. Help us to rightfully assess and and humble ourselves before your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard of Mrs. Duncan or maybe Mrs. Morrow or Mr. Ravenel? Yeah, I haven't heard of them either. Um, it's not surprising that we haven't heard of these people, but it might seem surprising that these three individuals have made an impact on millions and millions of people in our country. Just even over the last few decades, they made a huge impact in our world. Mrs. Duncan was a fourth grade teacher who taught one of her kids that it's okay to be smart, that it's okay to learn and help this, this child to grow and learn things. And that child was Oprah Winfrey. She's had an impact in our world, don't you think? The other person is Mrs. Morrow, who taught one of her students to read above his grade level and challenged him. That person is Tom Brokaw. I think we've heard of him. And then Mr. Ravenel was a uh, a war veteran who challenged and was greatly influenced the life of John McCain. People who have made an impact in our world. But yet we haven't heard of them. And yet they have had a great impact. They've done amazing things, and yet we don't know their names. It's because some of these individuals had looked to them and said, I want to imitate them. I want to follow after them. They have something that I want to learn from and grow in, and I'm going to talk to them and gain what knowledge and wisdom I have. And then those individuals went on and did um, 
did huge things in our country. Our question for this morning is one of them. Who are you patterning your life after? Friends of or enemies of the cross. In verses 17 and 18, starting in verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. As Paul has encouraged the Philippians to pursue Christ, he doesn't leave them guessing how that looks practically. He provides them with many examples for how they can pursue Christ, and he starts with himself. This kind of sounds like a humble brag. It's like, look at me, everything I'm doing is right. But we obviously know that's not the case, as we looked at last week, that he says, I am not perfect. (laughs) There's nothing amazing or righteous just in and of myself. It's all on Christ. But he does point them to himself. He says to pursue and press on like I am doing that. He's saying, do this one thing I do that I have this mentality of, have that mentality of of yourselves. As I have this desire that I may know Christ, follow that. So it's in imitating the things and the areas that he is like Christ. As he says this in 1 Corinthians 11, he tells them, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So it's not just that Paul is good in and of himself. It's the righteousness of Christ in him. It's the work that God has done in him. That's what he's saying to imitate. If there's any joy in the Lord, and imitate anything that is of Christ. If there's any humility, if there is any straining forward, he says, imitate what is of Christ. But he doesn't just stop at himself. He's not just saying, it's all on me. He points to others who are pressing on in Christ. Let's trace our way back in chapter 2. At the end there, in verses 25 through 30, he talks about a guy named Epaphroditus. You remember talking about him. It's a man who was a fellow worker, a fellow soldier in Christ. A messenger that the Philippians sent to encourage Paul, and he would even sacrifice his own health in service to the Lord. They knew him well. They loved him well. What a great example for them to follow. He says, keep your eyes on those who are walking according to that example. In verses 19 through 24 of chapter 2, he brings up a guy named Timothy. He's somebody who showed genuine love for them. Someone who is selfless and humble and proven himself in the gospel as he served alongside Paul. What another great example for them to follow. And then moving farther back into verses 6 through 11. We are met with the ultimate example that they were given. The example of Jesus Christ, who perfectly modeled all these things. Perfectly modeled humility. Perfectly modeled love, self-sacrifice, kindness. All these areas all met perfectly in Jesus Christ. The ultimate example who Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul were all modeling their life after. Looking towards, pressing on to become more like in Christ. These examples that he's referring to, it's focused on how they are living their lives, not just on what they're teaching. But it's through this letter, Paul taught them many things, right? He gives them lots of things for them to know. He taught them how to pray. He taught them how to preach the gospel. He taught them what it means to live for Christ. He taught them how to be humble and prefer one another. He has taught them who Jesus is. He has taught them how to be a light in darkness How much less powerful would all that teaching be if he never lived it out? If he said, just do as I say, not as I do. It probably wouldn't have been as impactful, right? 
Do you know somebody who just says, do this, serve others while they just go and serve themselves? Say, hey, you should do this, but I don't have to. That's kind of hard to take sometimes, right? It's hard to hear that and really follow after if somebody's teaching you and telling you to do something, but they're not willing to do it themselves. Now, this doesn't mean that the teacher has to be perfect. I hope we understand this, that I don't have to be perfect in order to tell you what God's word says. Otherwise, I'm not going to be telling you much of what God's word says. I don't have to be perfect in this. Paul doesn't have to be perfect. He acknowledges he's not perfect in this. He said he's still straining forward. But the teacher, those who are living these examples, it says they have to be striving for it. They have to be humble in knowing the areas that they do fall short. As As I'm preaching the word to you, I don't have to have it all figured out. But I do have to be humble in saying, I need to work on this too. I do have to be growing in this area as well, as God is working in my life, as I'm sure he's working in yours as well. We both need to be pressing on. We both need to be looking forward, straining towards that goal of Christ-likeness. When Paul writes to Titus, he encourages those who are older in Christ, more mature in Christ, to live as examples for those who are younger, not just to teach them. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, And in your teachings, you're supposed to teach them the truth, but in your teachings, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. It's not simply enough for us to teach what is right. It must be backed up with actions. This is what's often missing in the life of a church where it's easy to come in, sit in a pew and say, amen, I believe it. It's a little bit more difficult to sit here and say, amen, where do I need to change? It's even more difficult to sit here and say, amen, where do I need to change? And who am I going to bring alongside with me? Who do I need to go to and have disciple me? Who do I need to go to and encourage along with this? That's a lot harder to do. And I believe that the church Our church must be one where older, more mature believers are investing in the lives of younger, immature believers. And if we don't do this, I believe that our church will die off. I know it sounds harsh. I don't believe I'm exaggerating, though. Think about it this way. If all of you who are older and more mature in Christ, if you never share your wisdom and help and model that for the younger believers, what will the younger believers think? Like, oh, this doesn't really matter. I haven't seen it matter in anybody else's life. I haven't seen it lived out in anyone else. What does this have to do with me? Why should I even listen to this if it's not going to change anything about me? We have to model this. We have to disciple others, those who are younger. We have to show this off, our maturity in Christ that we have gained. We have to show it to them. If they don't see and have the help to raise their children in a godly way, If they haven't seen that model, don't know what that looks like, how are they going to do it? If they don't see and hear from your experience about how to suffer with illness for the glory of God, how are they going to be encouraged to do that when those trials come? If they don't see how to navigate all the pressures of the sin-cursed world, if they don't see it modeled in your life, they're going to be greatly discouraged as they try to live out their life. This is why we have the church. This is why we don't just listen to podcasts or watch sermons online. This is why we're gathering together to model this after one another so that we can join in imitating those who have gone before us and keeping our eyes on those who walk according to the example we have. 
we need you. This church needs you. Not only to come and sit in the pew and hear the word of God, but to invest your lives into others. I need you. You know, there's many times that I struggle in my sin. I hope you guys realize that. There are certain individuals that I can go to that encourage me and point me to Christ in this church. You know, I've struggled with my parenting. What do I do? Many of those moments of I have no clue what to do. I've seen modeled godly parenting in this church. And I go to those individuals and ask for help. Say, what do I do? Help me out. You have been here before. Help me to live and parent in a way that glorifies God. You know, I've suffered with injury and illness before. And there's been individuals that I go to that I've seen model how to suffer for the glory of God. And I I wouldn't have known how to do this. I've been able to read in the pages of scripture for how I'm supposed to do it. But for somebody to show me and teach me and help me along has been monumental in my life. So the question is, are you that person? Are you that person that somebody goes to for godly wisdom? Would you say that we as a church collectively really gather around and disciple one another? Show off somebody who we can imitate. Are you that person? How does that look practically? That for you to be somebody, for someone to imitate, how does that look? Well, one, you come to ABF this summer. Because we're going to be going through exactly some of these practical ways for you to show and be this model of good works. And this is ABF is going to be fantastic for us to grow in our uh, disciple making and evangelism and, and so many things that we're going to be talking about. We're going to be equipping you to do this work of the ministry so you can disciple others. But some practical things, bring up Christ in your conversations. This is a great way for you to show that you're somebody who is worth imitating. You love Christ. Believe it or not, we don't have to result to just talking about the weather. Do we realize this? We can talk about more than all the rain we're getting. We can talk about Christ. We can say, just saying, hey, it's really wet out there. Yeah, I know. Great. Okay, so maybe we can talk about, hey, what are you learning from Scripture? What's God teaching you? How have you been encouraged lately? You can actually go up to somebody and say, hey, can I tell you how God's been working in my life? The things that I've been learning. That's okay. We can do that. And by showing yourself as someone who talks about the Lord in your conversations, people will see that and go, wow, maybe I should be doing that as well. They can join in imitating you. Also, invite somebody into your home. A great way for you to show off and to, not show off, just show off the godly works. All right, we understand what I'm saying here, right? To show off your godliness as imitating Christ. Show those things is by inviting them into your home, talking about life together and how God has been at work in your life. Also, get involved here at church. Uh, I know some of you might not know, but uh, there's a guy named J.L. Coberly. Some of you do know him who had served the Lord and had stood at that into his 90s, had stood at that door, greeting people with a smile, handing out bulletins, and mowing this big yard out here. Into his 90s. What a model. What a somebody to, to imitate. And if he would have packed it in at, say, 60 years old, he said, you know, I put in my time, I'm done, I would have never known him. Because I came here later on in his life. I would never know who that is. If he would have just said, you know what, I'm good. I put in my time, I'm done. No, he was this model. He joined in imitating as somebody to, for us to imitate even later on in his life. Also, you can ask for help. If you need to be discipled, if you need to 
join in imitating somebody, ask them for help. There's been many times when I've uh, talked to a teen or somebody said, hey, can I disciple you? What are they going to say? Like, I mean, if the pastor wants to disciple you, then we're like, yes, okay. <laughs> Even if they don't want it, they'll probably say yes. And so what usually happens? If it's just me wanting to disciple somebody, usually, well, I'm too busy, then this comes in the way and that gets in the way. It usually doesn't end up working because I'm really the only one who wanted it. But if somebody came up to me and said, hey, will you disciple me? Will you talk to me about Jesus? Will you share your life with mine? Yeah, that, that would be great. So it's good to know who those people are. So you have to go and ask for that help. Invite somebody into your home. You get involved in church as well. Serve alongside somebody so you know who to imitate. Or imitate their godliness. But it's not just that you are that person or you are going to that type of person. We need to be constantly seeking how we can humble ourselves before the Lord and join in imitating those people. While there are those who we should imitate, there are some in this passage, verse, 19, verse 18, that we should not be imitating. There are people, he's saying, the other direction. People who are walking as enemies of the cross. We not only need to not follow them, but we need to stand against them and reject them. If they are rejecting the cross of Christ, we need to reject them as well. We need to make sure we're not patterning our life after people like that. Now, we don't know who exactly these individuals are. It could be the Judaizers that he was speaking about in verse 2. It could be about other Gentiles who have been a part of uh, the church in Philippi. But either way, we do know that Paul knows these people, because he says that he's telling you this with tears. He knows them deeply. He, he has had a relationship with them of some sort. And then they have turned away or rejected Christ. And that might have been the situation. Because Paul has encountered a lot of people who are enemies of Christ. He hasn't had tears for all of them. So he must have had a good relationship with some of these individuals who are now walking as enemies of Christ. I can kind of understand this perspective. I have a couple friends from college who we had once stood side by side for the gospel. We had once been sharing Christ with people. And, and even through tears and heartache, uh, we have labored together and sharing Jesus with others. Now, they reject Christ. And it's really sad. It's really hard to, uh, to think about it and even to talk about it. These individuals who you'd once labored with for the gospel, now they say they don't want to have anything to do with it. They reject the truth of Christ. But here it is, 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Even though they were involved, even though they were with us here in church or they were serving alongside us, by them showing and rejecting Christ, becoming these, these enemies of the cross, said if they had been of us, they would continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. And it's sad to think about these people. It's sad because they were once in our midst. We loved them dearly. And now the sadness comes because their end is destruction. That's why it's sad. It's because now we see their end, verse 19, is destruction. Where is your end? Is it destruction that it's talking about verse 19? Or as we're going to look in verse 20 and 21, citizenship in heaven, glorification. Is that the end for us? Let's look at first at those whose end is a destroyed body. Let's see a little, few more things about them. First, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. 
Speaking of their God is their belly, this is a picture of those who worship their desires. You could be talking about just people who fill their belly with whatever they see, whatever they want, they just take it in. But I believe it's talking more about the desires of their heart, that they desire anything, they just do what they want. Now, we kind of know this feeling, don't we? That if you see something and desire it, you just want to have it. Here's an example. One time when Marcy was pregnant, it was late at night, a commercial came on for DiGiorno's Pizza. You know, with the cheese all gooey and the steam coming up, all of that. It looked so good. It was like 10 o'clock at night. I went out right away, went to Walmart, got the pizza, we made it. And that night, I was even nice enough to let Marcy have a couple slices. Because it just, it looked so good. I said, I just have to have it. We all understand that desire though, don't we? That we look at something and say, I must have it. I have to do what I want to do. We probably know people who are like that. They might not always say, if it feels right, do it. But you can see their life choices. And it's always based off if they want to or not. And it's like, why didn't you do that? Well, I didn't want to. I didn't feel like it. But it was the right thing to do. It's like, yeah, I know, but I still didn't feel like doing it. I didn't want to do it. We understand that mentality. Second, he says that they glory in their shame. This is a picture of people who are proud of the sins that they commit. Where there is sin, there should be shame. There should, and usually is, a desire to hide it from others. Think back to Adam and Eve, the very first sin ever committed. What did they do? They hid from God. They tried to hide from God. They tried to cover it up as if nothing had happened. These individuals are now glorying in this sin. Not that they're trying to hide it. They're telling everybody this is a great thing. Most recently, I've seen this come up in the abortion argument. It used to be safe, legal, and rare, right? That used to be the argument. But now it is argued that it must be celebrated. Not too long ago, maybe a week or two, there was a woman who got up at a rally and shouted through the megaphone that she had an abortion, and it was met with cheering, with applause. What an amazing picture. And it's not just that in our culture. It's not just that. In many other sins that are out there, it should be celebrated and praised and it's sad to see that. Somebody who glories in their shame. But it's not just sad to Paul that they are living this way. It's not just that they are doing these things. It's because he knows where their end is. Because we've all had moments, have we not, where we have our God is our belly, right? Where we have just done what we wanted to do. We knew it was wrong, but we just do it anyways. We've all had those moments in our life, haven't we, where we have gloried in our shame, where we tell a story to a friend because it's hilarious, and yet we know it's so wrong. <laughs> and we've gloried in that. We've done these things. So why is it met with tears? It's because for them, their end is destruction. And so he's contrasting those people. Are you following and patterning your life after those types of people? Ones who imitate Christ or ones who are uh, enemies, they're enemies of the cross or are we focusing on the destruction that's there or our citizenship in heaven? It's those extremes that we see. But even in those extremes, glory in their shame, their God is their belly. If you don't think that's you, it's like, well, I haven't really done that. Look what else he says. It says, with their minds set on earthly things. This might be you. <laughs> this kind of encompasses the rest if you don't think you're in that extreme. We often have our minds set on earthly things, don't we? 
But where's our end? It says, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, this earthly mindset. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So where is your mind set? What do you go throughout the day thinking about? When you make your plans, who do you make them uh, in, in in your mind? Who are you making them in view of? Eternity with Christ or in the end is destruction? Is it about your glory and your fame? Is it about the matters that just concern you or not? But one of the difference, the biggest differences between being an enemy of the cross and a follower of the cross is our destination. And after speaking about this whole lot of doom and gloom and the, the sadness there in verses 18 and 19, he then turns their attention. He says, but our destination, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. What a reassuring thing that is for these believers as they are encouraged to press on, to strain, imitate these peoples, change your life. Your life must be different from the enemies of the cross. You have to look differently in your life. He says, as you're doing that, remember that your citizenship is in heaven. Now, the city of Philippi was a Roman colony. So they were part of the most powerful empire in the world. And they took pride in that. Why wouldn't they? Right? Can you imagine, perhaps, the pride that you might feel of being a member and being a part of a worldwide superpower? Can you think of that? Can you even imagine about how much attention you might give to that citizenship of being a part of the biggest superpower in the world? Could it be that you could think of maybe how they might have their focus in life about holding on to that citizenship? upholding those constitutional laws that they had, making sure it's the best country it can be. Can you imagine a mentality like this? I know that many of us are thankful that we have our citizenship here in America, right? I know there are quite a few of you who have given years of your life in service for this country, and we're thankful for that. And on this Memorial Day weekend, we're remembering those who have given the ultimate sacrifice for this country, dying while they're serving. And why, wouldn't they, why would they do this? Why would they give up their lives for this country? There had to be some conviction, right? There had to be some great love for preserving this country that they called home. Whether they had to go to a foreign land or not, these individuals sacrificed it all. And to think of people like this, it's really awe-inspiring, isn't it? People who would sacrifice it for somebody they don't know, for a country that they love. For you brothers and sisters in Christ, your citizenship, your home, it's not here. It's not in America. The USA is not going to be the best place you will ever live. We are just foreigners here. We're on a temporary visa. I don't know how else to say it, but our greatest destination is not right here right now. Our citizenship is in heaven. Think about how much time you might spend thinking about America and the issues we have and government, constitution, political figures, laws, policies, all these things. And all that time focusing our attention here on our citizenship in America, does it draw you to worshiping the Lord? I know a lot of times when I watch the news, I think, come Lord Jesus, right? Let's look at what our citizenship in heaven looks like. This word citizenship 
that he says in verse 20 is actually the same word that he uses in chapter 1, verse 27 of Philippians. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So it's a, used as a verb in order to say how to live as a citizen worthy of the gospel. In chapter 3 here, he's using it as a noun, as the describing the place. Just like here in America, it is a place, but to live as an American, you are following certain laws of the lands. Even more than that, you're living differently, culturally, than other countries. If you are a member of another country, like, say, Romania or Egypt or, or wherever. So, too, when you're understanding that your citizenship is in heaven, it's obviously going to mean that you are going to be living differently. It's not just that you're following different rules, but culturally, you are going to be different than those who are an enemy of the cross, those whose end is destruction. You have different values. You have different loves, different desires. Having a citizen of heaven mindset, you're going to focus on the coming of your Savior. Look at verse 20. Because he focuses our citizenship, citizenship is in heaven, for from it we await a Savior. When we look at all the things in life and the struggle of sin, when we think about maybe the pressures that you have coming this week or that are already, that are already here today in your life, all the trouble, troubles, if you imagine if Christ were to come back this very hour, does that put your mind at ease <laughs> a little bit? If Christ were to come back, things that you don't have to worry about or stress out over anymore. But if he doesn't come back, having the mindset of awaiting for your Savior, that should put your mind a little bit more at ease. Yeah, you still have to deal with the pressures of life. Yeah, there are still sins that you're struggling and working through. But knowing that your citizenship, citizenship is in heaven, that you're waiting for Christ to return, that he says that you will be, that your lowly body will be transformed to be like his glorious body. That should give us a different perspective on life. Knowing where our end is going to be. Being with Jesus is goal number one and remembering where our citizenship lies. But number two, our lowly bodies will be transformed. Man, I look forward to this. I was given an example in the hallway, actually, after uh, the service this morning. Uh, someone said to me, it was kind of, he imagined kind of like going to a rental car place when you were going to get like a 1975 Pinto. And they upgraded you to a 2017 Corvette. Getting that upgrade, it's like, oh man, that's going to be nice. <laughs> that was in their mind when they were thinking about it. And how glorious is that going to be? Like this lowly body transformed into a glorious one like Christ. First John 3, 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. What a wonderful day that will be. And he does this all how? How can he do this? By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. His sovereign, almighty power of God is able to transform our bodies to become like his. Is able to ensure that those of us who are in Christ, we are secure in our citizenship in heaven. And that's why we stand firm. That's why he tells them, stand firm, going the way of Christ. Stand firm in the Lord. 
For us, he's sharing with them. Look at this. He says, my brothers, these terms of affection, whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown. At the end, he says, my beloved, the strongest term he could use of love for them. Why does he show so much love for them after all this? Because they were just told some hard things. They were told about some things that needed to change. Some different things that need to be about them that maybe were once them. They have to start pressing on, straining forward. They have to start imitating those who are godly. Stop imitating. Don't follow those whose end is destruction. And he says, I'm telling you all this because I love you. And that's what we have to say together, right? If you hear a hard truth from the word of God, and you're sitting there thinking, oh, this is difficult. Why do you tell me this? It's because we love you. That's why we're sharing these hard truths with you. That's why we say there has to be a change in our life. There has to be something different. Because if this was all just easy information to receive, just go out and do the same thing, how would that be loving? This is what God's word says, that there must be a change. And he says, stand firm. I love you. I long for you to be with you again. He said, you are my joy and my crown. He's saying that I find joy in you, that he always is encouraged by them, as we see in this letter, full of encouragements. He also says, you are my crown. It is that crown of achievement. It's the victor in a race. They are placed, a crown is placed upon them. He's saying, my labor for you, as I'm ministering to you, as I'm serving you, as I'm sharing all this with you, it's like, you are my crown. By their actions, by their standing firmness, by their um, uh, oneness in the gospel, by their humility of mind, how they are applying these things, it shows that Paul didn't write these things in vain. That his ministry to them wasn't in vain. It says they are a crowning achievement for him. That as he's ministered the word, they have grown and changed and loved Jesus more and are living different lives. And that shows that they are his crown, that it wasn't useless. He says, stand firm then in the Lord. We're going to focus on this phrase, in the Lord, uh, later on down the road. Because we see in verse 1, he says the phrase, in the Lord. Verse 2, he says, agree in the Lord. Verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Verse 10, he said, I rejoiced in the Lord. And then verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, in the Lord. So we don't have time today to look at that, but we are going to take that later on. But he says to stand firm. And why do they need this encouragement to stand firm? Well, it's not easy. It's not going to come just naturally. Therefore, he says to the Ephesians, take up the whole armor of God. It's a very difficult thing to do, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. To the Thessalonians, he said, so then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. It's not an easy thing to do, to hold all to all those things that they were taught, to stand firm. To the Galatians, he said, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Sometimes it's easy to go back to our old sinful patterns, right? But he says, stand firm because he has set you free. Stand firm. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. To stand up for your faith, you need to stand firm. Why would we go to all this effort? Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's the church that will last. It's the way of the Lord that will prevail. 
It's Christ who will be the victor in the end because he is worth it. Because he is sovereign, that's why we're standing firm. Because he is our all in all, because he will return one day, and because our citizenship is in heaven, that's why we are standing firm. Because of all these things, he is to receive glory and honor and praise in our lives. When we're down to this question, which way are you going? We are to go the way and follow and imitate those who are like Christ. Ultimately, pressing on to be like Christ. We do that because of him, because he, our citizenship is in heaven. And if you don't know where your end is, you don't know where your destination is, maybe you wonder, is it destruction? There can be a way for you to turn to Christ. Right now, you can trust in him. If you need help and wondering how that works, come talk to me afterwards. But your end should not be destruction. Our citizenship, those of you who are in Christ our citizenship is in heaven, and we're waiting for him. He has the power to subject all things to himself. Let's subject our lives to him, right? Let's go out from today. Let's change. Let's find somebody that we can look to, to imitate. Let's be that person and bring somebody alongside us to imitate us as much as we are like Christ. Which way are you going? Let's pray. Lord, help us today. There's much in this passage that we have to work on, we have to grow in. Um, it's not going to be easy. But we know that as we stand firm, you work in our hearts, you work in our lives, you give us uh, the motivation, the desire, and you give us the strength to stand firm in your word. We need your help to do this. We need you to do this in our lives. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.